Lynching. It's a word we hear all the time, but until my interview with historian Bill Kerrigan, I didn't realize how complicated, nuanced, and quite frankly subjective the topic can be. In fact, did you know scholars and historians haven't even agreed upon a definition of the word lynching? Lynching doesn't necessarily involve hanging someone from a tree. Did you know every ethnic group in America has lynched and been the victim of community-sanctioned lynchings? Did you know ethnic minority mobs, to include Blacks, have lynched white people? Crazy, right? So many interesting things unpacked in this episode. It was a privilege to interview Dr. Bill Kerrigan, who is a professor of history at Rowan University and is a native Texan. He is the author or editor of numerous scholarly articles and four books, including The Making of Lynching Culture, Violence and Vigilantism in Central Texas. Since 1995, he has studied a niche topic of the lynching of Mexicans in the United States. In addition, Bill specializes in research on the largely unstudied history of lynching in the United States between 1877 and 1882 specifically. Be ready to have your mind blown by this episode. I'm Connie Morgan. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. And remember, there is no such thing as a Black perspective, just Black people with perspectives. Bill Kerrigan, thank you so much for joining me today. This is going to be a really interesting conversation about a topic that, um, you know, before we hit record, we were just saying, I don't think about this topic very much other than what I'm directly told by the media. And I think there might be some things that are yet to be discovered when it comes to lynching, which is kind of maybe an uncomfortable topic, but a very fascinating topic that obviously plays a huge role in American history and world history, I would argue. So, Bill, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive right in, your area of expertise and why you are sort of, you have this niche area of expertise mm-hmm. in lynching. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's it's um, an honor to speak with you. So yeah, uh, I am originally from Texas. I grew up outside of Waco in a little place called Chalk Bluff. And that matters a little bit to this story about why I ended up studying lynching. Uh, I'm today a professor of history at Rowan University in New Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia. And uh, I have published a number of books on the history of lynching. Uh, My first book, uh, The Making of a Lynching Culture, which was published uh, many years ago now on the lynching near where I grew up. And I'll talk about that in a second. And then I published another book, which I co-authored with Clive Webb on the lynching of Mexicans in the United States. And I've done a couple of other edited volumes. And I'm currently working on yet another book on lynching, uh, which is a study of lynching after in the years immediately after the end of Reconstruction. So there is a great, I I get this question a lot. Why uh, have you studied lynching? Why do you continue to study lynching? Uh, It's a dark and difficult subject. And uh, so the the origin story of how I, I, you know, got interested in it was I had a, a history class, an undergraduate history class at the University of Texas at Austin with a professor named George Wright. Uh, he was an award-winning teacher. He was fantastic. Uh, he taught large lecture classes, but was very captivating. And one of the uh, classes he had was on segregation and kind of Jim Crow and the late 19th century. And he brought uh, lynching photographs to class. This was back in like 1992 or so. And uh, of course, there was no internet and you know none of us had ever seen these photographs and he passed them around. And uh, I was you know stunned by these, especially because some of the most jarring of all the images were from this lynching of this guy, Jesse Washington, who was lynched in 1916 in Waco. 
you know, media reports uh, estimated the crowd as large as 15,000, other reports 10,000. And you can see in the photographs, because it's one of the few lynching photographs that we have that were taken in the process of the person being lynched. Most lynching photographs are after the person was killed. This, this was taken while the person was being burned alive. And uh, you can see just the people are just packed in. And uh, that led me to well, a couple of things. One, I had grown up in that region, not far from Waco, and it was a very legitimate thought that I might have been in that crowd if I had been born a hundred years earlier or whatever. So uh, I really, uh, I didn't understand it. I knew uh, about racism. I had lots of friends who uh, were various levels of racist, uh, worked with mm. people who were various levels of racist, but burning someone alive in the middle of the day and uh, taking photographs and making postcards about it, all that stuff was hard for me to understand. And so the question that kind of soon emerged and ended up kind of working on that with George Wright, in fact, for my senior thesis was why did ordinary people lynch? Mm -hmm. Similar question to what historians ask of the Holocaust. Right. Why did ordinary Germans go along with the Holocaust? People who, you know, walked their kids to school and had jobs at, you know, they were grocers and they were just ordinary people, but yet they somehow at least tolerated, if not actively supported uh, something that I think today would be considered beyond the pale. So anyway, that's how I got interested in it. And, um, you know, I just kind of continued to find it interesting. You know, new questions kind of have emerged uh, along the way, as I already mentioned, kind of one of the things when I first started, I knew very little about lynching. But what I did think about lynching was, you know, kind of a stereotypical white mob and an African-American male lynching victim. And along the way, I discovered that wasn't always the case. And in fact, you know, lots of other groups had been lynched, including many times Mexicans, and that had rarely been studied. And so I ended up studying that. So I've just continued to find uh, the topic fascinating, interesting and complex. And that's why I've kind of uh, continued to, to work on it for all these all these years. Yeah. So I guess what we should do first is define lynching, right? Mm -hmm. uh, make sure people were all on the same page. Because even just when you were describing that, the Jesse Washington case, you said he was being burned alive. Was that part of it? You know, what right. has to take place for something to be considered a lynching? Okay, great question. And uh, unfortunately, there's no agreed upon answer to this. There was none at the time, and there's still none in the present. They had various different groups have argued about it for for a very long time, for lots of different reasons. Lynching is a has been at least since, well, for a very long time, it's been a heavily politicized word. So to call something a lynching and not call something a lynching, it matters politically. And thus the contestation of the word matters politically. Mm -hmm. And so from a scholarly point of view, that's tricky. So I will just simply say how I have, when I'm studying, I, sometimes I study the word lynching and I'm interested in how that word is used and what people mean by it and how that word changes over time and how it changes even outside of the United States. So that's something I've done a little bit of work on. But I often study, of course, the act of violence itself. And so when I'm studying the act of violence, what am I looking for? And for me, the thing that distinguishes lynching from murder, and of course, it's a, it's a type of murder. Like I, right. I, there was at one point in time when lynching actually did not necessarily mean lethal execution. Like if you go back to the middle of the 19th century, and people would refer to lynching as some kind of neighborhood summary justice that might be something short of death. So for example, tarring mm -hmm. and feathering somebody was at one point 
lynching or wow, okay. uh, whipping somebody, you know, and like uh, making them leave the community that would have been considered lynching in the, in the 19th century. Uh, but uh, for me, it's a lethal execution and illegal, right? Illegal, lethal execution. And then it has to have some level of community sanction. It has to be something that the neighborhood, the larger community supports. That's what makes interesting lynching so interesting to me is that it's a window into the minds, the values, the beliefs of the these people who, you know, frankly, most of the time don't leave behind the kinds of sources that historians need. They don't leave behind diaries or journals or they don't appear in correspondence of diplomatic officials like ordinary people in small towns. You know, this is something they did, something that they actually thought was probably fairly an important moment in their life. And uh, so trying to understand why they did it why they supported it. That's been uh, something I've been fascinated with. Anyway, it has to have some level of community sanction. How do you determine if something has community sanction? Because almost in no case uh, is there 100% approval of lynching in a community. That almost never right. exists. So that's the part where people are going to find it very tricky. You will find some people on the very liberal end who will say, as long as there's at least a group of three people, uh, that will count as community sanction. Uh, then there's other folks who will who will want something um, you know broader beyond that. Certainly, if you have a very large crowd of hundreds or thousands, that's for most people. That's that's going to be uh, enough proof of community sanction. Uh, for me, it has to do a lot with how the uh, constituted authorities respond to the lynching. So when a uh, you know a murder occurs. Uh, to what extent do the uh, folks who are prosecuting murder, you know, treat this as a murder that must be solved and people must be punished, or do they kind of look the other way? They do a minimum job. What is the, you know, the, there's always a coroner's, almost always a coroner's inquest. Does the coroner's inquest kind of do a perfunctory job and conclude, you know, died at the hands of persons unknown? That's a very good sign that there's not a lot of uh, support in the community for punishing these these supposed lynchers. So, so would you just call that you just call that murder then? You don't like put the lynching title on it. You're like somebody was murdered in the backyard. There's only two people there, and then the police investigated and they went to jail for doing that. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you. A, I mean, I'll give you an example, and this is one that say would distinguish me from other other historians. So there was a. a a murder of a of a person named James Byrd in Texas in the 1990s. He was killed by white supremacists. Uh, he was an African American man. He was dragged behind their truck and brutally killed. And uh, there were, I think, three of them that did the killing. Uh, but unlike cases earlier, the town in East Texas where this person was murdered were horrified at what had happened. Uh, they uh, indicted and prosecuted the three people. They were all convicted. I think two of them were convicted to death sentence and one life in prison. Um, and, you know, I think it was, you know, maybe it wasn't, if it wasn't maybe all white jury or maybe it was like, you know, majority white jury. So that kind of response to James Byrd's killing is, in my opinion, very different than what happened to, say, Jesse Washington. Jesse Washington killed in public, middle of the day, Everyone knew the identity of the leaders of the mob, and there was no indictment 
whatsoever, much less, you know, any kind of punishment or anything. So to me, there's a big difference between what happened to Jesse Washington and what happened to James Byrd Jr. James Byrd Jr., three people, sadistic, I would say evil individuals, uh, fully punished by the local court system. That's to me different than what happened, you know, whatever, 75 years earlier when the legal system just simply ignored the lynching of not only Jesse Washington, but but others. Now, that said, this is a tricky kind of thing. You know, there's there's always the cases that are like, okay, it's obvious there's community sanction and support for this lynching. And then there's other cases that that are even you know more questionable than the James Byrd case. So uh, it's, an, it's a tricky thing to do, but I kind of like the fact that it's difficult. You know, it makes it interesting to me. I, I'd embrace the challenge of this. And, you know, if there's other going to be good, well-meaning scholars who are going to disagree with me about it, and that's fine. So basically today, really, there wouldn't be a lynching today. I mean, I don't, I don't know that you'd find a place in America where somebody would get lynched and everybody would just turn, you know, pretend it didn't happen or quietly give the thumbs up. So there is were, that there correct? Nothing like Jesse Washington. Like if somebody lynched somebody in the middle of the day and there was lots of evidence of it, no. But I can imagine, I wouldn't say it's impossible for this to happen again because those cases like Jesse Washington are, they were extreme even in that day. So here's something that could happen. People in the middle of the night, you know, uh, break into or otherwise, you know, find a person who's been accused of a crime, uh, murder the person, uh, and then escape. And then is that just simply a murder? Well, once again, it would depend upon the local authorities. How much do they how much do they really care about this person who was killed and how much do they investigate? In other words, I'm not willing to say there's no local authorities in the United States who uh, are are would be impossible that they might uh, do a poor job at investigating one of these crimes. I, I think it's unlikely, but I wouldn't go so far as to say that there's no chance of a lynching at all in the United States anymore. There is probably no chance of something like Jesse Washington happening again. But once again, I would say that that's, that's on the extreme side of how I would, you know, most lynching cases. Would you define it as a lynching if there was a situation where maybe a man's daughter was raped and he goes with his buddies and grabs the guy, hangs him up from a tree, kills him. And then it does get, you know, it does go to trial and the jury just says, you ain't guilty, buddy. And it's kind of says, <laughs> good job. Like, how would you qualify that? That would be a, that would be one of these cases that I think would, would merit a consideration as a, as a lynching. I would, I would say um, there would be some people who certainly would call it a lynching, and I would probably lean towards calling it a lynching. Uh, it, you know, it, it kind of depended upon – I'd have to look at the case and if I thought it was truly – you know, uh, the legal system has some good things in place. In other words, did they wear masks? How how hard was it for the, uh, the prosecution in that case? So I, I wouldn't say a hundred percent for sure. I would say it's a lynching, but I would say I would, I would look, if that was all that I had, I would go into it saying, I think this is a lynching, but I'm open to the evidence suggesting that there might, it might not be, but, but I would, I would start with that. Okay, cool. Yeah. I think that's good to, to kind of clear those definitions up from people, for people listening. Do you get a lot of pushback then from people like, 
people getting very passionate and heated, like, no, yeah. it counts as a lynching. Like, how do you handle those? You just kind of oh, say, yeah. hey, man, we have different definitions. Let's just keep it pushing. Or well, what's the I response you get? Yeah, I absolutely get it from from both both sides. And, and that's that's fine. So there are people who think that I am too strict in the way that I count my lynching cases and that there should be, you know, there's some cases that I, I have in both all my books so far. I have these two inventory. So at the back of my book, I'll have a list with, you know, all the names, all the dates, places, as much as I can, as accurate as I can of all the lynching victims or mob violence victims. And then I have, I have two inventories, a kind of an A and a B. And the A ones are the ones that I feel definitely count and should be, they're the ones I use for my data when I'm talking about, you know, what percentage we're in this decade or that decade or how many in this place or that place. But then I have a second inventory, which are cases that I likely think are lynchings. But for some reason, there's something about it that leads me not to include it in the other inventory. And that could be uh, a lack of specific information. Like sometimes I'll have just like they were lynched sometime in the summer. That's not specific enough for me uh, often to include. I want something a little bit more specific than that. Or I just I just have some lack of confidence in the source or there's something about it. And then also it's where these other cases come in where like, I'm not quite sure it counts. It might count. It might not count. And I kind of leave that in this other inventory. Anyway, there are people who definitely think that those cases in that inventory should be in my main inventory. Uh, and then there are, of course, other people who think they look at my main inventory and they say, well, why did you include this? This is, should not be in here. It should be in the other inventory or it should not be. It's not a lynching at all. So uh, I definitely get it from both sides. And I just, you know, I think most people who read my stuff think that I do have a pretty decent, honest job and they have different definitions and they might uh, look at it different ways. But I think they appreciate uh, kind of what I'm doing. A lot of folks who... Um, want to avoid that level of uh, people contesting about their their sources are going to just shy away from counting in general like I have I you know I have all of my studies are I, I have these inventories in which I say these individuals list on these dates and I, I try to give precise numbers now I always kind of admit that this is just a a fraction of the actual number of folks, folks who were lynched because the sources don't survive to have a, a truly accurate uh, list of that but there are other folks who just want to say estimates. So they just say, you know, whatever, 5,000 Mexicans were killed or lynched in my violence in this period. Or they'll say, you know, we we don't know for sure, but this amount. And that's uh, certainly very defensible. But it to me, it's, it's um, easy for folks to dismiss estimates. You know, I think it's, it's the, the more specific you can be, uh, the harder it is for people to kind of... Um, you know, not take what you're doing seriously. So I've always believed and not all there, there are other, or even lynching historians, really good lynching historians who believe that I'm overly focused on kind of counting and the numbers and that kind of stuff. So how many lynching historians are there? Is this like a huge block <laughs> a of good, historians? It's a good question. My mom had the same thing. I, when my first book, one of the, uh, reviews of it in, uh, in, a, in a good academic journal said that, you know, William Kerrigan has quickly established himself as one of the leading scholars of lynching. And uh, my mother was like, how many are there of you? you know, I was like, Thanks, mom. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's probably you know, among historians alone, there's probably, I mean, it kind of depends on how you count them and like, but I'd say maybe there's 
25 or oh, wow. Probably, wow. probably maybe more than that. It kind of depends. I mean, sometimes it, it's like, are they historians? Or are they sociologists and geographers right, right. and literature people? And so, you know, that will kind of vary. But there definitely are, you know, more than there used to be. When I first started, you know, there were just maybe when I when I first, you know, uh, looked at the Jesse Washington photographs so when I was an undergraduate, there were a, just a handful. Really, they were like, maybe three people who were active in publishing at that time. And there had been a few more who used to be active, but, but, but there's a lot more people who study lynching today than there was when I first started. Okay. And you said something that I think was very like humble and self-reflective. You know, you said you saw that those pictures when they were passed around by your professor and you thought I could have been in that crowd. I don't think that's how most people mm. think about themselves, which I believe is incorrect, right? We all mm. have this idea that we would have, had Anne Frank in our attic, we would have been mm. on the Underground Railroad, we would have been the superheroes. Um, and uh, one of your angles to your research is why do normal people fall into this? So right. what, are, what are some of the answers you found? Like, what mm -hmm. is it about this mob mentality or the psychology of it that people get wrapped up in who are otherwise probably thought of as good people? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's, it's kind of one of the, yeah, the main things that I that I, what I want to do. I mean, I, sometimes people say, oh, you know, you do African-American history. And of course they don't, that's when they can maybe don't understand exactly the diversity of lynching victims and things like that. But I say, this is not really a story about African-Americans. They are almost always a tiny percentage of the people involved in the violence that I'm studying. They might be the victim in many cases, but the vast majority of the people doing the lynching are usually white. So I'm really studying kind of why all these white people ended up deciding they wanted to uh, to lynch this person. And that has been a fascinating and interesting thing. Like I said, I did think, you know, there was a chance that I might have been in the lynch mob. Anyway, here's the short answer to your question. I think that how we remember people who commit acts of violence uh, goes a long way to kind of creating a culture that can support uh, future acts of violence. So um, one of the things that I argue in my first book was that, especially in central Texas, Texas has a lot of lynching. I would argue Texas has more lynching than any other state. And, and that's not – Texas has lynching, lots of lynching of, of Mexicans, lots of lynching of African-Americans, and lots of lynching of white people. And it has a culture that 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 – gives great praise to those in its history who committed acts of violence. So for example, uh, Texans care a lot about their history. They, you know, war, two wars with Mexico, the revolution and the, and the U.S. war with Mexico, lots of fighting with Native Americans in, in the lore of Texas history, uh, reconstruction and the war against the, uh, you know, Republican regime there, as well as outlaws. And there's lots of other kind of parts of this. So anyway, in Texas history and in Texas kind of culture, I believe that, you know, great men, manly men are those who are willing to defend their communities with violence when needed, whether that's against Native American raiders or going to war when needed or whatever. And so one of my arguments is that if your culture says that manhood is associated with not necessarily, you know, randomly killing people, that's not what I'm talking about here. It's about you know, willing, being willing to step up and defend family, community, et cetera, when threatened, that is a powerful, I think, force in, in kind of Texan culture. And I think that it 
gets when combined with other things, it ends up leading to lynching. So, so for example, if you wanted to understand Jesse Washington, as I tried to understand him, how it got to that point, you know, cause that's kind of, that's not something that I think people in the middle of the 19th century in Texas, or even the late 19th century in Texas would have said, that's what we mean by, you know, masculinity. They would have thought what happened? It got out of control in some ways. And my argument there is that after the kind of end of reconstruction, after the last Native Americans were kind of removed from Texas, that there were no longer opportunities for young men to kind of prove themselves through war or Mm, other kinds of violence. And so you had a whole generation of young Texas men who were told, you know, real men and real heroes you know, do these kinds of things. And there were no real opportunities for them to prove their masculinity except for lynch moms. And so lynch moms become a way for them to say, you know, like my forebears, I also defend my community when there's danger. So if you start with that thing and then as the, when these lynchings then happen and then the local authorities don't do anything about it, they don't prosecute anybody that feeds on itself and it grows over time. And then of course there's, of course, racism is involved and the way that racism is changing in the late 19th century is I think very sad. And it's a lot of people don't understand that, you know, racism of some type is is a constant and i think it will always be a constant in in history it's just people are going to perceive people differently and make assumptions and discriminate based on appearances and all kind of other differences but the the particular ways in which the form that racism takes changes over time and the way that racism was changing in the late 19th century fit with a very brutal form of violence and kind of combined with these other elements of, in my opinion, uh, men wanting to prove their masculinity led to things like the Jesse Washington lynching. My next question was going to be about uh, misconceptions. And honestly, even the Texas part is a little bit of a misconception, Mm -hmm. I think, because I think when most people think of lynching, me included, before I learned about you, is Mm -hmm. like, okay, this was happening in the Bible Belt South, you know, racists, Mm -hmm you know, lynching blacks. And once you say Texas, I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes sense too. But I don't really think of Texas as part Mm -hmm. of that, Mm -hmm. the, you know, the Southern Bible Belt area. So what are, what are some of the other misconceptions probably in terms of like pure number? Cause I've Mm -hmm. had, um, when someone was pushing me on this, they were like, how many lynchings do you think have happened? And you just kind of throw out some astronomically Mm -hmm. large number and they're like, well, this is how many lynchings have actually happened. You go, Oh, wow. Um, mm-hmm. And then as as far as the demographics of the people being lynched mm-hmm. as well, you've already touched on that a little bit with Mexicans, right. but kind right. of percentage wise, how does it break down blacks, Mexicans, whites, maybe mm-hmm. even Asians? Tell me about that. Yeah. So uh, those are those are great questions. And I will say that, you know, the I think you're correct that most people today have a perception of lynching being African-American male victims, mostly in the South, maybe the deep South usually for murder or, or sexual assault. And that perception of lynching is very much a product of the late 19th and early 20th century. And it was largely the, um, it's not that there was no reality behind, of course, there were lots and lots of people lynched in those categories, but it, it's, um, it's a, it was not perceived that way until maybe the 1890s. And one of the really interesting questions in the history of lynching is that, 
uh, say if you if you look at lynching, say before it's it, we don't have perfect numbers on this, but if you look at lynching, say before 1880, I think it's quite likely that African Americans are not 50 percent of lynching victims. They are probably always disproportionately lynching victims, uh, as are probably Mexicans and probably Native Americans. But they are there would be more white victims of lynching, say, before 1880, maybe even before 1890, than there were African-American victims. But by the time you get to the 20th century, uh, African-Americans are are maybe 95 percent of victims. If you count with Mexicans being a, a big exception that if you it depends on it depends on on the number of Mexicans that were lynched during this period of time. But white victims, European descent, you know, the folks would be defined legally white, maybe by the would be, you know, a small, small percentage of the victims. And that's a big change from what it had been earlier. And the so the modern perception of what lynching is derives from this later period in which it is true that lynching became overwhelmingly a crime associated with African-American men, but it had not been earlier than that. In fact, lynching meant something so different. One of the most interesting things that I think in the history of lynching is this, is the, the way the word well, how the word has changed. So during Reconstruction, of course, everyone is familiar with the Ku Klux Klan and their activities and violence. What's really interesting is that the Ku Klux Klan wanted to be known as lynchers. And the Republican press, who were opposed to the Ku Klux Klan, refused to call them lynchers because to call someone mm-hmm. a lyncher in the context of the 1860s was to uh, give them a positive connotation because of what lynching meant in the culture at the time. So basically because of the California gold rush, and maybe this is more details than you really want. During the California gold rush, there was a famous vigilance committee in San Francisco, but there were vigilance committees in other parts of San Francisco. And they really changed the way that lynching was perceived. Because California had so many people from all over the world, and because it had such a, a feeble legal system at the very beginning, it was overwhelmed by people seeking gold. There were legitimate cases where people were like, we have no legal system crime. And so they would come together, they would form these orderly vigilance committees. So in San Francisco in particular, they had like, they would appoint, it were illegal, extra legal uh, things, but they would appoint, you know, uh, prosecutors and defense attorneys, they would have judges, they would have kind of a very mock kind of thing, but they would quickly execute people who were criminals. And there were people who were, of course, in California, from New England, from New York, from Pennsylvania, from all over, and they would write back to their families and say, you know what, I was never in support of lynching or lethal, ex- you know, extra legal violence before, but in California, if you were here, you would also be in support of it because it's we, we have to do something about uh, these criminals. And those letters and reports matter. And so the idea of who a lyncher was was shaped by the East Coast press, uh, but the East Coast press reacting to the California uh, reports, they ended up saying that, well, lynchers, especially in California and the West, are, are middle class, good law and order people who are defending their communities. Anyway, it's a long more than you wanted. But what happens is that by the time you get to the 1860s, this this idea of what lynching is still exists. And that's why there's this battle over the term lynching where Republicans are like, no, Ku Klux Klan are terrorists. They are outragers. They are not lynchers. Lynchers are different than the Ku Klux Klan. They are 
not to be called lynchers. And of course, Klan wanted to call themselves lynchers. Anyway, interesting question. I'm probably way off track here, but no, my- no, this is super fascinating. So just to just to paint a, a really clear yeah. picture. So lynching meant one thing on the East Coast. Then in California, it was turned into kind of mean this organized street justice type of thing that was seen as fair and necessary in order to keep the Wild West under control, right? Mm-hmm. So those folks over there write back to the East and say, this system actually is pretty cool. Like it's working for us. We're for it. And then the Ku Klux Klan gets word of that through reading about it in the press or hearing about it from people they know personally. And they go, all right, we're going to adopt that mentality and we're going to claim that everything we do is just as well. Right. That's that's how you tie it all, loop it all together. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, that is, that's that, that's a fair summary of it. Christopher Waldrop is the person who has the, uh, the, the book on this, uh, and it's called The Many Faces of Judge Lynch. And he has a great chapter about both of these things about how the word was shaped and changed by the California vigilance committees. And then how during reconstruction, there was this battle over the word. So uh, he's the person to read on that. I've actually heard a rumor. I don't know if this is true or not. Someone, when I was just kind of telling them about having you on, were like, you should ask them about this. And they were saying that the, one of the largest mass, maybe the largest mass lynching in United States history took place in California. And it was actually, I think, Chinese men who were lynched. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about that? Can you speak to that? Yeah, there, well, yeah, there's the good question. And the whole idea of what's the largest mass lynching in American history, there's, it's kind of like, where's the first place that, you know, uh, Americans uh, flew, you know, there's different, you know, those people had the hot air balloon and the Wright brothers, and there's different kind of, things about who right, started right. this thing first. And so you'll find different folks who will have different things in which the largest mass lynching, and it kind of comes back to the definition. But absolutely, the Chinese suffered massive uh, uh, vigilanteism and attacks. Uh, the One of the most famous, I think, maybe the one that your friend's referring to is not in, there is one in California that, that did take the lives of many, but there's an even bigger one in Rock Springs, Wyoming. Uh, and that is one of one of the largest mass lynchings in history where uh, angry white miners frustrated with basically Chinese uh, labor competition sparked then by an allegation of a particular crime by uh, a Chinese individual went on a, a kind of rampage of killing uh, Chinese workers. And um, yeah, that's one of the, the largest in the history of the United States. There are others, uh, of course, depending on how you you count these things. These things get tricky. You know, there's one of Mexican, there's a couple of Mexicans that are very large numbers there. There's one, there's one case in, in Los Angeles area where a Mexican group, uh, ambushes and kills a white sheriff and the white community goes absolutely bonkers in response to this. And basically is trying to hunt for these group of people who did kill the sheriff, but in, trying to find that person, they just indiscriminately kill, you know, any Mexican that kind of even f- somewhat resembles the, uh, the identification of the people. They really don't care. Um, there's similar acts against African-Americans where something will spark a riot and there'll be kind of, you know, there's the famous ones in Tulsa, there's Rosewood, and there's, there's lots of these mass acts of mob violence. Whether or not they're lynchings is always a tricky thing because, 
how much does the, you know, is it this person we're punishing for this reason? That also is oftentimes part of lynching. Like this individual committed this transgression, whatever it may be, and they are being punished by the mob for this transgression. Whereas, you know, kind of indiscriminately, we're killing any Chinese person that we find, even though we pretty much know that probably they unlikely to have done this one thing that started it. That's that for me, I have a hard time calling that a lynching. I tend to say it's mob violence for sure, but I, I tend to, to, but it's a tricky thing. Uh, it, it's, it's not so easy always to distinguish in those cases because sometimes the, yeah, it's just not. Anyway, uh, long answer to your question. There's also a very famous case of Italian Americans who were lynched in New Orleans that often is also brought up as one of the largest mass lynchings in history in 1891, I believe. So uh, there are several cases. There's one of of unionists. That's a, one of my the ones that I always like to talk to people that kind of you know shocks people is that there was uh, a lynching in the middle of the Civil War of white unionists by pro Confederate you know, population that believed they were protesting the draft or uh, undermining the draft. And they hung um, many, many, many uh, whites. Uh, and sometimes people say, this is the, the largest lynching from a from an individual tree. You know, people have their own things of how they define these things. But it was a, yeah. a very large lynching in any event. Yeah. Do you, do you kind of count it as a mass lynching if it happened as part of one sweeping like burst of anger. So maybe it happened over a few days. It wasn't from the same tree. It wasn't even on the same day. Like how do you yeah. define mass lynching? Oh, well, that's a good question. And I just simply, even though I do care about counting, I don't, um, I don't have, you know, a list of like mass lynchings in, in my work. So for example, if it was killed at a different day, then that would be different lynching episodes for me, even though it might be sparked by the same, uh, you know, violent and the crime. same like, people doing it. Yeah, it could be like they're hunting down these eight people who raided and robbed this store, and they find three of them on this day, and they find two others on this day, and they find the other three on the other day, and they lynch this person who hid them on one other day. That would all be separate lynching episodes for me, even though it's all connected to the same story. But I know others who would, you know, want to put them all together and say this is a, a single mass lynching. But for me, it's it's uh, I, I would once there's a different day that I can distinguish and a different moment in time when they were lynched, then I would I would separate them. OK. And then something else, too, that I think maybe you can unpack a little bit is I think there's this notion, too, that particularly when when black people are lynched, but probably when anyone's caught up in kind of this mob violence. And you've talked, you kind of got at this a little bit with California, but everybody thinks they were innocent. Every person who's ever been, every black person who's ever been lynched didn't commit a crime, right? They didn't actually rape anybody. They didn't actually murder anybody. Um, and I, I would assume some of that logic probably applies to any Me Mexicans, Native Americans, but what's really, what is actually the trend? Like how, what percentage, it, it might not be right to take justice mm -hmm. into your own, own hands, right? We have a system mm -hmm. and let's go through the system first. That might be the part that's wrong, but how many of these people, I don't know if you have a rough percentage or if you even know, maybe it maybe differs based on ethnic group are mm -hmm. actually guilty of some kind of crime. Like they did something really right. horrendous and then the mob mm -hmm. just got their hands on them. Mm -hmm. That is a, that's a, you know, that's a, it's a tricky question to answer. And in part because there's never the full investigation that you need. There's absolutely right. right. You're absolutely right, though, that there's no doubt that some of these people did do uh, the crimes that they were, um, 
you know, accused of. I think there's there's absolutely no doubt that some of them, some of them did. Uh, there's also no doubt that in fact some of the people were innocent. You know, they, they even even the white newspapers who are reporting this will uh, admit. You know, sometimes later, yep, got the wrong person. You know, whatever. And uh, that's of course the one of the great tragedies of of lynching is that it is certainly no. Uh, it's an imperfect instrument for policing uh, crime. I'll give you, a, you know, an example from Jesse Washington that I often talk about. And, you know, I had some dispute with, there's been a lot of push to kind of remember Jesse Washington in Waco and Central Texas, and there's now markers and there's monuments and this kind of stuff. And I have been supportive of all of that. But I, I did early on, I gave a talk in which I said, you know, I'm, I don't know if I would choose Jesse Washington to be the single individual to talk about this history. And I actually nominated this other guy named Jesse Thomas. And that's because I think Jesse Washington probably did uh, kill this woman, uh, as far as I can tell. And it, once again, this is not a legal it's not a legal case, but it's just, just a historian's case. What do I think happened, right? Historians don't have the same, uh, you know, right, uh, right. shadow of a doubt thing. So I can just kind of, here's what I think happened. I think you know, he was a farm worker. He had been hired by this family. I think that what happened is that the the wife of the farmer came up to him and was yelling at him for his lack of working hard or his maybe poor technique or something else and was criticizing him for his uh, work. And I think he instinctively took his hammer and smashed her in the head, uh, you know, maybe not even thinking too deeply about it, just, he just lashed out. And then, then uh, once she was, you know, dead, he, he, you know, continued to kill her to make sure that I guess, I don't know, whatever, who knows why he was thinking. But anyway, the long story is I think that he probably did. There are some people who think that he was innocent and I, they could be right. I, you know, this is one of these things where historians don't know for sure, you know, about these things. You have to use the best evidence that you can. I think he probably did. Anyway, doesn't mean that he should have been lynched. Terrible, absolutely horrible, not trying to uh, justify it all. And I, like I said, I'm supportive of the monuments and markers that have been erected to him because I think it was a terrible moment in, in the history of the country, much less the region. But there was this other guy, Jesse Thomas, who was lynched several years later. And his situation was, I think, it would have been the one that I would have highlighted. What happened with him is that there had been a murder committed uh, and there was a report that there was this African-American male about this age with a gold tooth or something like that. I can't remember the exact description. And this guy, Jesse Thomas, seemed to fit the profile. So people dragged him before the victim, the human rape victim, in in the process of doing this, there's a lot of confusion as to what exactly happened, but we know that the father of the rape victim shot and killed Jesse Thomas in this whole grab him off the street, take him, and he got killed. And we also know pretty much, I think, the next day in the white newspapers, it was, nope, Jesse Thomas was not the person. He was not there, totally innocent. And the father who had and after the father was, of course, with other people, and after he was shot by the father, they took the body, burned it after it was dead, and dragged it through the streets of Waco. So this is like why it's a lynching, because it's, even though you might think, oh, just one individual shooting, it, it, he did, I think, actually kill Jesse Thomas. Yeah. And so some people would even dispute that and say it wasn't lynching. But the way that the mob was supporting him, egging him on, and then the way they burned the body afterwards, to me, it makes it definitely lynching. But anyway, he turned himself in when he found out that Jesse Thomas was innocent the next day. And the local authorities were like, 
no, that was an honest mistake. <laughs> and mm, they just let him go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to me, that case is kind of, um, if you're going to choose one to kind of illustrate why lynching is a really bad thing and why we should not endorse it, I think Jesse Thomas is the poster child for what can go wrong with that kind of mob, uh, you know, behavior and mob thinking. Um, and But the thing about Jesse Thomas is he's still, even today, not very well known. There's no photographs of Jesse Thomas. It's a little bit of a strange case because, you know, he was killed just by the single individual. And so for a lot of reasons, people who are, who are interested in promoting the history of lynching prefer Jesse Washington because it's a, a more stereotypical case. There's great photographs of Jesse Washington. And so Jesse Washington ends up, you know, getting uh, all the attention in this regard. And, you know, it's, it's to your point, you know, uh, the, the fact that he probably committed the crime for which he was accused doesn't matter to a lot of the people who are, who are doing this history. And I think probably they're right. I mean, it doesn't, it, it to me, it's a terrible thing. It should never have happened, even if he was guilty, but there are other folks who of course are not going to be Sympathy. They're going to be less sympathetic. Why are you erecting a, a, a monument to a person who probably you know committed murder? And so that's yeah, the pushback. Yeah. It ends up dividing the community. Whereas I think Jesse Thomas, you know, who is going to disagree that this was a great tragedy? I think everyone in the community would agree that Jesse Thomas was a terrible tragedy and a, and a thing. And Jesse Washington, I would like for most people to agree was a terrible tragedy. But I, in fact, I know because I grew up there that not everyone is going to agree because of, of the crime initially. Right. Right. And, you know, I would say I'm sympathetic to those kinds of people, right? Like if, if you're a murderer, (laughs) you're, yeah, you're a murderer, right? I don't, I think we have a justice system for a reason, but I'm not as sympathetic to, to those kinds of cases. So I can kind of relate there. And where can people read about, Jesse Thomas, like, is because there's no pictures and stuff. Where, where can we well, learn more about this? Book, he's Are you the only one kind of covering this? No, there's others who have talked about Jesse Thomas a little bit. I mean, I I learned about Jesse Thomas from a master's thesis, and then like an article by this guy Jim Sorrell is a really good historian. So I wasn't the first person that ever uncovered what happened with Jesse. Thomas, I I was very lucky. I did some oral interviews in the 1990s when I first started this, early 1990s, and there was a person who was uh, alive at that time who claimed that she had been present during the killing of Jesse Thomas. Now, tough to, she was very old and you question her memory, but uh, she, she had a very, she believed that Jesse, and one of the things that's interesting is the way that memory works with the African-American community in Waco. There's this Jesse Washington case and Jesse Washington was an outsider he wasn't from Waco. No one knew him before he was lynched. And then there was Jesse Washington, Jesse Thomas. Jesse Thomas, of course, had the same name, just first name. And mm-hmm. he was from Waco. He was a well-known person and he was innocent. And so what happened over time is that African-Americans would conflate the two and they would they would kind of take parts of both of these episodes, in my opinion, and they blended them together into one uh. lynching memory. Um but anyway, this person I interviewed, um, she claimed that the well, her version of it was, and once again, this is a long time after, but what she said is that when the father came with Jesse Thomas, that 
she didn't say he did it. She just like reacted like, ah, some kind of some kind of reaction like that, which the they daughter took, did. The daughter did to took to mean that he did it. But that was she was she was re- according to this person I interviewed named Willie Long Smith. She was reacting to she knew they were bringing him this person that they that they thought did it. And it wasn't the person. And I don't know who knows what exactly happened in that episode. Uh, but that's what that's what she said. That's the only part that's really new for me in my book is I had this interview with this person who claimed that she was there and uh, added to uh, the story a little bit. But I, I do talk a lot in my book about the memory of Jesse Washington and Jesse Thomas and how that changed over time. And I think that's a really interesting story. Anyway, that's in my first book, The Making of a Lynching Culture. Okay, great. Yeah, that's that's totally fascinating. Um, and then, so because lynchings in earlier American history, you, you're saying it wasn't even 50% black, most likely. And then that shifted, I think, around that you said the 1890s. Yeah. Was, the, yeah that's that's when the, you started to see the shift where it suddenly it's 90% or whatever are, are mm-hmm. minorities. Did that, so in total lynchings that have ever happened, have things kind of balanced out where it's 50-50 or did the black lynchings then start to really surpass the number of white victims? What do those overall percentages breakdowns look like? Good question. And we, we don't have, we don't have great data on it. The current project that I'm doing is a a study of lynching all across the United States from 1877 to 1882. And this, there is no national data on lynching in this period. We, the first data that we have on lynching starts in 1882, because that's when the Chicago Tribune started keeping lynching data. It's flawed data at that time. Later on, Tuskegee and NAACP will keep their own lynching data. But basically, we have imperfect lynching data starting in 1882, and we have no lynching data for the whole nation before 1882, even though before 1882, there is a lot of lynching. Like if you didn't study, if you take 1882 as your date, then you would miss most lynchings of Mexicans in the United States because lynch, mm, Mexicans okay. were lynched. They were lynched consistently, but the two there were two great periods of lynching of Mexicans. One is in the 1850s during the California Gold Rush and during lots of there's lots of violence in Texas during the 1850s as well in the decade after the Mexican War. Then there's a lot of uh, lynching of Mexicans in the 1870s because of cattle theft and horse theft. A lot of whites are also lynched in the 1870s, but yeah. Mexicans are certainly um, part of this lynching uh, wave in the 1870s that is involved in because cattle prices go up and all of a sudden cattle is, you know, very economical, important, you know, it's it, a lot of people can make money off, off cattle in the 1870s. So anyway, a lot of lynching of Mexicans during that period. Of course, you would also mention, miss most of the lynching of Native Americans as well. And we really don't right, know right. those numbers. Same thing is probably true for Chinese, lots of Chinese lynch earlier too. So anyway, we don't have good data on this earlier period. If you're asking me just to make a guess, you know, based on, you know, uh, my my gut feeling about it is that probably when it's all said and done, yeah, that African Americans will be you know, maybe around 50% of all victims, maybe maybe not. You know, I it, it's hard to say because there were of course African Americans lynched in these earlier periods. They were probably always list, lynched disproportionate to their population. So for right. example, even in this earlier period when whites were the majority, say like someplace like Texas, um, I think probably a bit Texas that maybe like say in this period that I'm studying right now, 1877 to, to uh, 1882, 
white victims are maybe like 60% of victims and African-Americans are maybe 30% and Mexicans are maybe 10%, something mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that in that period. But uh, African-Americans are not um, 30% of Texas's population during that period. Right, they're, right, they're maybe right. like 20% of the population or something like that. So, Yeah. So, I mean, still black lynchings are, are very overrepresented. I'm not trying to, you mm-hmm. know, downplay that at all. I just, I'm, I think it's useful to paint a picture to people that the, the, Victims of lynching are a lot more diverse than I think most of us realize. Uh, yeah. Could you speak to, and I know it's hard because we don't have great data on those earlier mm-hmm. times, but kind of what the overall, I don't know if you ever do this exercise in class yeah. or if you ever yeah. ask people, yeah. hey, how many lynchings do you think have happened? And what sort mm-hmm. of feedback do you get? And then you tell them, well, actually, mm-hmm. this is what we mm-hmm. estimate to be the no- <laughs> total number of lynchings. Or is that just too big of a question to ask since I mean, it's a we don't good have question. that great data? I mean, one of the things I think you're, that, that maybe would be interesting to you and kind of what you're getting at is that I try to do this, um, or we try to do, my co-author and I tried to do this idea about with regard to Mexicans, right? We, we, we did a nationwide study of Mexicans. It's not perfect, but we tried to study all the lynching of Mexicans that took place in the United States from the U.S.-Mexican War, you know, all the way to the last one. And... In that, we tried to try to figure out what is the likelihood of a Mexican being lynched, and we tried to compare it to the likelihood of, say, an African-American being lynched. And what we came out with is that the danger of them being lynched was roughly the same. So if you were born black or you were born Mexican in the United States, your danger, chances of being lynched were roughly the same because the Mexican population at that time was a lot smaller than the African-American population. So the total number of of black victims is much greater than the total number of Mexican victims. But because of the population difference in size, the chances of them being lynched are about the same. Now, of course, this would vary. If you lived and you're African-American living in Massachusetts, you're not going to be lynched. If you were Mexican and you happen to live in Chicago, you weren't being lynched. But obviously, you know, overall, that's what we're talking about. So that's that's one interesting way to kind of get at what I think you're asking about, which is how people kind of misunderstand the, the, the racial the dimensions of lynching in the United States. The other thing, of course, is there's a there's a lot of, of, of whites who are lynched early on, and they do tend to be horse thieves, cattle thieves, which is another stereotype of lynching. And whites are not always, not, that's not the only crime for which whites are, are lynched for. Of course, they're lynched for murder and, and sexual assault and all that kind of stuff as well. But there are lots of white cattle thieves and horse thieves that are lynched, especially prior to, say, 1880. That's actually like a, a great way to look at it too. Um, thank you for kind of pointing out that, well, not even differences, similarities between your risk of being lynched Mexican versus, versus black. And then, the, you know, that what is a stereotype too. I think when I think of lynching, I think like racist whites lynching blacks and then kind of the cowboy, cowboy mm-hmm. culture, mm-hmm. Um, like the cattle thieves, horse thieves, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But I also wanted to just get at pure numbers. I think also a lot of people have this mentality that there was a lynching on every, every Sunday, you know, in Mm -hmm. every major city or something. And I don't know that that's true. Right. Even, even when someone asks me, how many lynchings do you think every, for anybody, white, black, doesn't matter what type of victim, how many lynchings have ever occurred in the United States? I, Mm -hmm. I I just totally was like, I have no, I don't, you know, 5,000, 10,000, like, you know, I don't, I don't know. Probably 10,000 or, or maybe maybe a little more than that, but you're right that it's it's certainly not 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 only is it 
you know, like a town or a community, they may have no lynchings ever in their entire history. And then there are other communities that may have a few lynchings in their history. But you're not talking about there's a lynching every every other year in every community. It just, right, right. That, that's not that common. So, you know, if you looked at the local history of like you took a town in even in Texas, you know, there would likely be a lynching that took place near there. But it's not even the case that like every town in Texas definitely has a lynching in its history, you know. So yeah, um, yeah. and then if you take someplace like Ohio, right, there are lots of towns in Ohio that probably had a lynching uh, because lynching is once again, it's another assumption people make. It's about the South. But in fact, lynching was, you know, except for New England, New England's probably an exception where there's very, very there's sometimes attempted lynchings in, in New England, but but very rarely successful lynchings, if ever, in New England. But if you once you go to the Midwest, the Mid-Atlantic, uh, the West, all these places have lynchings. So there's lynchings in Ohio, but there's lots of towns in Ohio that, you know, had no lynchings. And there's some that maybe they had one lynching in their town's history, maybe some that had two or something like that. But um, there's, yeah, I, I think you're right that probably there can be in the modern day and age a perception that racial violence was more common than it probably really was. And it was way too common, but still not as common as sometimes people think. Right. So there's kind of two dynamics happening. I think that one is that people assume, when we talked at this at the, at the very top of this interview, oh, I would have never been in that that mob, you know, I would have been one of the good guys trying to stop it. And then also, but other people are even more evil than, <laughs> you know, like we think other people are doing the bad stuff at higher rates and that we are less likely than we really are to participate in that bad stuff. So that's kind of an interesting, I don't know what that is about the human mind, but sort of a, an interesting, uh, observation there. So if you had to change, maybe you wouldn't, but if you had to change the way that we're kind of taught about lynching, whether it's even just in high school, however, whenever you first, probably about high school is when you really start mm-hmm. talking about it other than seeing it in movies and that kind of thing, because it's a heavy topic for like small children to be learning about. Mm-hmm. What are the things that educators, particularly if there's some, if there's somebody listening, you know, they're a history teacher or something like that. And they're like, wow, I never, never, dug into this topic either what are some things that you wish people would kind of change in their approach to teaching um, Mm -hmm. folks about lynching culture this is a good question and i i i've been asked something similar about it quite a bit and you know depending on the audience you know the way that i think if i was a high school teacher for example or if i was running a museum or something like that that wanted to have to talk about lynching the way that i would actually do it and this may sound it just won't work for some people. But the way that I would do it is I would tell the story of lynching through those people that successfully or attempted to stop lynching. Uh, those folks exist. And in fact, this is another thing is that maybe isn't a, also going to be, I think, a uh, this is an important story that I haven't that I'm not telling. And I think there are some historians working on this. There are probably for every one lynching that took place. There is also a lynching that was stopped that didn't happen. Wow. That people wanted to lynch the person, but some people stood up to the mob and prevented it from happening. Sometimes this is the sheriff who is just kind of like, you know, there's there are these sheriffs who would be like, okay, if you lynch this person, you're right. The authorities probably won't care and you'll get away with it. But I'm not going to let you do that. And in fact, 
you're going to have to come through me. And if you shoot me, they will prosecute you for that. And so you have to really, you know, do you want to do this? And also, I'm going to shoot you and I might take some of you out. And sometimes, unfortunately, that sheriff gets shot. <laughs> sometimes that right, sheriff gets right, shot yeah. and they beat the heck out of that sheriff and they still lynch the person. And sometimes they turn away. Sometimes it's the relative of the victim. Like, you know, a lot of times the father of the victim or the husband of the victim is leading the lynch mob. But sometimes the husband of the victim or the father of the victim or a brother of the victim will stand up and say, we don't, we're dealing with enough right now. We don't want a lynching to be another thing that is making this even more difficult for us. We would prefer that the courts go through with this. And that sometimes will not work. Sometimes they will still like overpower the relative, throw them away and still lynch the person. But a lot of times they will end up getting the mob to stand down. Anyway, these stories about lynchings that were... Now, I will say this, that an attempted lynching is also an act of terrorism, right? Like if you think that the community doesn't know that their person was almost lynched, that would be wrong. So it's a way of... Even when you don't lynch somebody, you send a signal to, you know, like say, for example, African-American community or the Mexican community, like, look, you guys almost got lynched. You, you almost went too far. And next time, you know, you better stay in your place or else we will lynch you. So I don't want to say that an attempted lynching is like just a moment of great heroism and not at all. And it's not a great thing. But if I was teaching lynching, I would teach lynching through that lens of these people who stood up to the mob. How do you stand up to a mob? How do you stand up to people who yes. are going to, yes. you know, that kind of stuff? And that's how I would tell that story because that's the kind of, that's who we want our young people to be, the people who would stand up to mob behavior, mob thinking of all different types. So that's how I would teach it. I would still, of course, you know, I think if you talk about attempted lynchings, you can, then you can easily get in. Well, sometimes they failed to stop the lynching and sometimes they succeeded in stopping the lynching. And so you can get, you know, both sides of that story in, but that's the lens that I would, I would approach it if I was doing it, you know, at a a high school or a museum or any kind of public facing thing. And how uniting, I mean, just we have all this racial strife in America. That's just a lot more of a united message, too, because, I mean, in all these cases, I'm assuming most of these cases where somebody stepped in, you say a sheriff, a family member or whatever, that was a white person putting their life on the line for maybe another white person, but also a black person, a Mexican person, Mm -hmm. whoever else. And that's just we don't those stories aren't as I don't know, they're not as fantastic or something. They're not as. Mm -hmm. They're not as the headlines, not as catchy or something. And so we don't tell those stories as much. But yeah, that is, that is that's and you say some some folks are working on publishing something about these. Yeah, there's, these a, stories. there's a, a couple of um, uh, at least I think I think it's a, a sociologist, I think, who's working on this. Uh, I know because I believe it was funded by the NSF. So the National Science Foundation funded their research. I haven't seen if it's been published. I think one article has been published on it. And uh, it's going to be a more statistical approach. It won't be really a narrative approach, but it will be it'll be something uh, on this important subject. And, you know, I've 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 I have collected lots of stories about this and someday maybe I'll I'll do something on it as well. But it's it's tricky to do because a lot of times these folks, we don't know a lot about them. I'll give you, and I know we're going overtime. I'll give you one story of my favorite guy in this in this regard, but we just don't know a lot about him. So if you read my book, Forgotten Dead, about the lynching of Mexicans, the Texas Rangers do not come off looking good. They do not come off looking good. They are the you know leading uh, assassins of Mexicans, and uh, 
They are brutal. Lots of reasons to for it that I can go into. But anyway, if you read that book, you would not think that I have anything good to say about Texas Rangers and a lot of people not happy with that. I'm, uh, I'm sure, but there is this really interesting Texas Ranger. So when I was doing my original research for my first book, I was reading through the newspapers and I came across this case and there's this white woman who was, her, um, fiance was murdered and she was supposedly raped and assaulted and thrown off this cliff, but then she didn't die because she was able to catch a tree branch and climbed back up the cliff and lived and she said the african-american had attacked her and killed her fiance and i was like "Woof, this does not sound good and i ended up arresting this guy named ivory clay because his shoe size was the same as some tracks that were found at the scene of the crime that's about all the evidence they had uh, on the guy. yeah they had these other people who were like no he was having dinner with us he couldn't have been him and they were like oh that's other african-american people covering for him so we're going to disregard their testimony especially when this woman gets up in court and says yes it was him he's the one who did it and i'm like this guy is at best he's going to get legally executed and there was a lynch mob that was formed that tried to get at him but he was protected from lynching and then so i'm like reading this story and it's a lot of ways it's kind of you know not that atypical at this point. And then the most like surprising thing in all my lynching research happened. I woke up or I read the next day the newspaper and it was like the woman, the central witness, the victim had been kidnapped by this Texas Ranger. And mm. they were hunting for this Texas Ranger and this woman. And, like she was gone. I was like, what is going on here? Whoa. And it ter- turns out that he had, I think we don't, and that, this is why I, I can't, I don't. I haven't been able to write more about this guy because I just can't find out very much about him. His name was R.D. Shoemate. He apparently had been in Waco doing some other kind of investigation, and he just smelled something wrong with the whole story. Just didn't buy it. And so he kidnaps a woman, sweats out a confession from her oh that, in gosh. fact, her brothers had killed the fiancé because he had gotten her pregnant and refused to marry her, and so they killed him. And they uh, came up with a story to blame it on African-American and this whole thing. So they ha- and he figured this out and got the confession and Ivory Clay got off and he was not lynched. Wow. He was not convicted because this guy did this crazy thing, which Texas Rangers sometimes, I guess, do, you know, that like is not something that, you know, you would imagine today would happen. But anyway, so here, there's a guy who I think deserves, yeah, I think he saved this guy's life for sure. And uh, no one knows about him. And I can't, I haven't, I've written about him a little bit. I wrote about him on the, uh, was it the hundredth anniversary of Jesse Washington's lynching? I wrote a little, I wrote a little thing in the Waco Tribune Herald that talked about this guy, but I don't know very much about him and I haven't been able to write more about him, but I think he's the kind of person that would be a great person to kind of lift up. I'm not saying he's perfect and I don't know a much about him, but I do know in this one case, he did something, I think, pretty heroic. Absolutely. That sounds like a movie in the making. I'm like, wow, I'm on the edge of my seat. (laughs) (laughs) I Um, think it would be a good one as well. Wish we knew more about it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll keep an eye out for that should you discover more. Um, So we will (laughs) wrap it up here with our quick trigger, 10 questions for you, and then give you a chance to kind of you know, say your final thoughts. I actually did want to clarify one thing though, before we move Mm -hmm. forward. And that is, are the mobs always, always white? Like, have you ran across, have there ever been a native American mob or something? Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's another, 
Uh, we could go on for this for a long time. So absolutely, there are African-American mobs that lynch African-Americans. There are even a couple of cases of African-American mobs lynching white victims, if you really want to blow your mind on that. There are definitely lots of Mexicans mobs who lynch other Mexicans. Mm -hmm. There are integrated mobs in which, you know, they're, they're both African-Americans and whites who are part of the mob. That is, and that's, that's of course, much more the case in the 19th century before you get to this later period. When you okay. get to the later okay. period where lynching really becomes racialized, it doesn't happen very often or very rarely. But in this earlier period, you know, if you were to ask African-Americans and say the period I'm studying right now, say 1877, 1878, you know, is lynching a crime that is reserved for, you know, the punishment of African-Americans as a way to maintain, you know, racial dictatorship? I don't think most African-Americans would have said they saw, saw lynching in that way. You know, they 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 might have said that, um, you know, they, I think they would have seen it as a as a punishment for crime that is probably more likely to be extended to uh, certain groups than others. Those groups would be African-Americans. Yes. But also like outsiders who are not from the community or poor people, they would have had a little bit. Um, so I think they would have had a more a nuanced understanding of it. The way that lynching gets perceived later, definitely not the way that lynching would be perceived at that time, uh, even among the African-American community. Now, you can look at someone like Ida B. Wells. Ida B. Wells is a great, fantastic um, lynching, anti-lynching leader. And if you look at her own work and talk about how she saw lynching, not that she thought about it that much, but she has a transformation in her own mind about how about what lynching is and why it's orchestrated and all this kind of stuff. It happens in this kind of period around 1890. So, you know, in her earlier life, she didn't see lynching that way. And I and she becomes right. one of the great anti-lynching activists in the history of the United States. And I think, you know, she is more perceptive than the average person. And I think there's a lot of average people who didn't even have her level of kind of quick she's quickly understanding what's happening she's on the she's on the cusp of understanding lynching's transformation it's racialization she sees it happening earlier than most people uh, and even she didn't see it you know as early as i think some people might might think okay cool yeah i know we could probably spend a lot more time on the demographics of the mob but i just wanted to put that asterisk out there yeah. too so people can do their more more research but it wasn't always always whites mm -hmm. doing yes. doing the mob yeah. stuff so let's move on to the the quick Quick questions. Mm -hmm. We got 10 here for you. I'll just start right now. Should election day be made a national holiday? Yes. Is naming a sports team the Redskins wrong? Yes. The Black Panther or Blade? Black Panther. What's the wildest conspiracy theory you kind of believe is true? I think Martin Luther King Jr., uh, his assassin had help that we have never identified. Should the United States keep daylight saving time? Yes. Are golfers athletes? <laughs> yes. Is kneeling during the national anthem an appropriate form of protest? Yes. What would your last meal be? <laughs> Tex-Mex enchiladas. Does pineapple go on pizza? No. <laughs> Should the United States return to the gold standard? No. <laughs> all righty. That's all 10 of our questions. I hope there was some kind of fun. And maybe um, if some of your students or colleagues listen to this, they'll get, they'll see a little bit more into who, who Bill Kerrigan really is. Do you have any final thoughts, things you want to promote, things coming up, articles, books, talks, just something you want to get off your chest that doesn't relate to lynchings? 
Um, no, I, uh, I appreciate this very much. You know, I am working on this, uh, this project now, which I'm, I, I think it's going to be very interesting, but it's, it's going to be a long time before it's, uh, it comes out. I'm, I'm, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of research. It's a lot easier to do the research now than it used to be because of online stuff, but it's still going to take me a long time to do it. So at some point there'll be, uh, this book, which I'm calling right now, I think, uh, lynching reinvented mob violence after reconstruction. So that'll be out, but not anytime soon. Well, when it is out, please let us know, and we'll we'll at a at a minimum maybe we can have you write something for the for the journal. Maybe bring you back on the podcast. This has been that'd be awesome. I mean, this has been one of my favorite podcasts that that we've done oh, so far. So thank you, thank you so much for for coming on, and um, we look forward to to reading about more of your work. All right. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Black Thought Podcast.